Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm CEO Dan Mariash, and thanks for spending some time with us today. One brief reminder, check out our video interview series, Conversations with B'nai B'rith, on Facebook and YouTube. You'll find discussions with historians, diplomats, Middle East experts, even an astronaut, an NFL player, and a legendary DJ. Watch our latest content by subscribing to the B'nai B'rith YouTube channel and liking us on Facebook at B'nai B'rith International. The name Issachar Zachary doesn't usually ring a bell, even for most American historians. Even fewer know he was more than just the preeminent foot doctor for political elites, including President Abraham Lincoln in the 19th century. But in recent years, Zachary has gone from mostly forgotten American Civil War era figure to becoming more widely known as an important person in the Civil War and greater American history as none other than Lincoln's wartime secret agent. Dr. Ernest Abel, author of the book, Lincoln's Jewish Spy, The Life and Times of Issachar Zachary, is here with me to delve into Zachary's incredible life story as a doctor who treated the likes of Henry Clay and General George McClellan. He was President Lincoln's confidant and he was an unlikely Union agent. A doctor, scientist, and Civil War historian, Dr. Abel is Professor Emeritus at Wayne State University in Detroit. He had joint appointments as full professor in the departments of obstetrics and gynecology and psychology. Dr. Abel is also the author of more than 40 scholarly and trade books and more than 200 peer-reviewed articles and trade magazine articles on Civil War history and is a member of the Michigan Civil War Roundtable. Ernest, thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome, glad to be here. Well, that's great. Well, based on your medical background and Civil War knowledge, Dr. Zachary's story must have been intriguing to you. Um, a surgeon in his teens, Zachary acquired knowledge of the treatment of the feet and at least from what Lincoln wrote, knew how to make his patients better. His uh, reputation was marred among other reasons by some uh, shameless uh, self-promotion, uh, but he benefited from powerful connections it seems and attained considerable success. And his uh, Civil War activities alone would fill a book and that's what you've done. What is your perception of him and how did it change by the time that you completed the manuscript? And maybe perhaps first, what is it that caught your attention about Issachar Zachary? Well, I very much uh, was interested in flawed characters. Uh, I wrote about uh, John Wilkes Booth before this book, and uh, I noticed uh, in him a flawed character that, uh, of course, uh, resulted in one of the most infamous uh, activities uh, in United States history. And uh, while I was researching that book, I came across some anecdotes about, um, uh, for want of a better uh, reason, uh, Issachar Zachary uh, being involved with Lincoln. And I started, you know, I, I didn't know anything about Zachary, and I started researching him. And uh, the more and more I, I looked into it, the more I, I saw some kind of similarities between a guy who was a self-promoter, narcissistic, very involved with himself, and yet, in this case, not in Booth's case, but in, in this case, uh, a guy who didn't need to fudge his credentials. He really was the real thing as far as taking care of feet. He was, he was par excellent, uh, a podiatrist. He used to call it chiropodist. That's the English term. 
uh, that's still used in England, but uh, he was very, very good at his profession. And he parlayed this into, as you pointed out before, being a, a physician or not a physician, for, but a podiatrist to many of the famous generals in the Civil War, which led him to Lincoln. And uh, Lincoln was, not a, was a very astute and judge of character. And he saw in this guy, uh, a flawed character, a guy who seemed to want to make a name for himself, who was very interested in promoting himself, needed to promote himself, and saw in him somebody who might be of use to him uh, in terms of um, going into the community, building himself up, but at the same time reporting back to Lincoln what he had found. And so they formed that kind of camaraderie. And uh, this led to uh, some of uh, his other activities. So, so that's kind of a roundabout way of saying that I, I was interested in him because he is an unusual character in that he wasn't all good and he wasn't all bad. He was, like many of us, a, a person who had uh, flaws, but also had some of its excellent points. Well, we're talking about uh, <clears throat> character. Uh, going way back into the 19th century. So where did your research take you in your search for more information? Where do you find information about um, individuals like Zachary, who these were not major figures uh, in, in history, nor major figures really in, in Civil War period. Um, so did he have any, did Zachary leave papers to any archive or institution? How did you find this information? I found most of the information uh, looking through the papers of uh, General Nathaniel Banks, with uh, whom uh, <laughs> Zachary um, at first uh, was a, a spy for him in New Orleans in the Jewish community. Uh, Banks was appointed uh, the, the um, military director uh, of the uh, part of the uh, Union occupation in New Orleans. And Lincoln sent uh, Zachary to Banks, telling him he'd be uh, a very good um, person to have uh, in, not as, in his staff, but somewhat in his staff to report back on what the Jewish community was doing in New Orleans and how they were reacting to the occupation. They formed a kind of a, a allegiance. They, uh, it was very unusual because Banks was a very um, private person, and uh, Zachary was a very outgoing person, but he went in the community, he uh, organized a spy organization for banks, and uh, sent people into the uh, outer parts of, um, of Louisiana, uh, and uh, had them report back, and he would then tell uh, banks what was going on. He, at the same time as he was um, reporting to banks, he was reporting to Lincoln about banks. So he was doing a lot of uh, spying and counter spying and, uh, and, and um, finding out information. But uh, banks left a large uh, repository of letters uh, about between Zachary and about Zachary that I found at the Library of Congress, which uh, allowed me to gain insight into uh, his character and his relationships. I had also done a lot of web searching, found out uh, um, some of the uh, early information about um, his parentage. Uh, uh, Zachary's uh, father uh, was born in 
what used to be Poland, it was taken over when it was divided between Austria, Germany, and uh, uh, Russia. Uh, but uh, Zachary's father still considered himself Poland. He emigrated to England in the early 1800s, uh, wound up in one of the port cities, Chatham, um, um, England, which was a uh, shipbuilding uh, area. And uh, he was a peddler there, as many of the Jews who emigrated to England were. He married uh, a um, local girl there, uh, Amelia Cohen, uh, whose father was a chazan at the uh, local uh, shul. And uh, he sort of um, became part of the community. And then later on, um, he moved to the United States with his family. It was a cholera epidemic going on uh, around the 1830s. And after the Napoleonic War, Chatham fell on bad times. So they had economic trouble. So for one reason or another, he left. But uh, what I found was uh, this, this background information on the Zachary family uh, that I started going back and looking at the records. So that was another source. So of, they, of, they, actually, uh, they actually arrived in the United States what year? I think it was 1832, 35. I can't remember what exactly. 1830s. And you mentioned the, you mentioned the, the connection of a, of a, a chazan. Uh, was this a, a family of practicing Jews? Uh, in the, in the uh, in England, it was, and they were Sephardic. Believe it or not, a guy coming from Poland, a man coming from what used to be Poland, was uh, Sephardic. And uh, although Cohen is usually thought of uh, an Ashkenazi name, was also Sephardic. So they were a Sephardic family, and. Uh, Interesting background on this Sephardic family. Uh, Issachar is named after his grandfather, uh, Jonathan's father, and uh, their second son, um, uh, Jonathan and Amelia's second son, was uh, um, uh, uh, named after um, uh, her, fa her uh, father. So that sort of followed the patronomics of the Zachariah. Uh, clan of, of uh, Sephardic. And then the fact is that um, Issachar's first name was not Issachar Zachary, it was Issachar Zachariah Jr. And Ashkenazis don't name their sons juniors, Sephardics do. And so this is, I, I got really interested in this nomenclature because uh, one of the things that I was very interested in, still am, I uh, was a member of the American Name Society. And names are very, very important uh, and something that I was interested in. So I spent a lot of time tracking down the Zachariah name and um, this patronomics. Where did the, uh, where did the family um, arrive at? Uh, where did they move to when they arrived in the United States? They first came to New York and they didn't know anybody there. So they went to Philadelphia. And the reason they went to Philadelphia was a uh, I, I believe, and this is, I'm speculating, but the, the, the events later on proved that it probably was right. They had some friends uh, from Dison, uh, um, and uh, they spent time with them. As many of the Jews who, who you know, would come to any new country, if you found somebody you knew, uh, it was a lot easier to settle in, or if you had family, a lot easier to settle in. So they moved first to Philadelphia. Um, they became part of the Jewish community. Uh, Amelia became uh, a dry goods uh, uh, shop owner. Um, Jonathan 
uh, was a peddler. And so they made a living that way. Uh, after a while, they decided to pull up roots and uh, move to uh, Charleston, South Carolina. But just to go back to Philadelphia, that's where Issachar met his future wife uh, in, uh, in Philadelphia. Now, you, you write that uh, Issachar was kind of a, a wunderkind, uh, a, a teenager who practiced surgery, and he seemed to do it in a way that made people feel comfortable. Now, I, I know this is an era in which people uh, oftentimes uh, obtain uh, various procedures from barbers and druggists uh, and others. I mean, how did he do this without going to school? <laughs> well, that's the amazing thing. Uh, there was a, a itinerant uh, podiatrist called Behrens who uh, had some, spent some time in Charleston. And uh, apparently he watched him and uh, he learned the techniques uh, for doing this from Behrens and uh, decided he's going to go in business for himself. And at that time, his parents were well off enough to uh, open a store for him, a shop front. And uh, he started doing uh, procedures on his own there. But at the same time, he started selling patent medicines from the same uh, spot. So he's, he's doing, uh, you know, treating people's feet and also selling them patent medicines, which was, you know, a combination that he, he kept up for a long time until he just sort of stuck with his um, podiatry business when that really took off. But he learned, he learned pretty much from and then perfected the techniques himself. He was really a, a, a remarkable individual in that he could do these procedures and, and people bore him out with you know, removing nails and removing corns and bunions painlessly. So in a way, he kind of contributed to the, the development of podiatry at, in that day. Yes, very much so. In fact, there's a uh, scholarship uh, named after him at the Pomona Foot uh, a podiatry college. Uh, so they, they keep his memory alive that way. Tell us uh, more about Zachary's early life, particularly his life in San Francisco, his uh, connection to the Jewish community there. He, uh, in, in, in the wake of the uh, gold rush, he, like many Jews, headed uh, west to San Francisco. He, uh, went, with his, uh, he, he went with his brother uh, and uh, they originally went landed in San Francisco, and then they went uh, to uh, Stockton and set up a, a dry goods business there. And uh, he became uh, there were there weren't that many many Jews obviously in, in that part of the country. And um, when uh, he came to San Francisco, there was the first Jewish child born west of the uh, Mississippi. They needed a moil, and because of his uh, skill with a with a knife. Uh, he was the only one that they could turn to, and they became the, the moil for this first, um, first uh, child who was born, uh, first Jewish kid who was born uh, in San Francisco. They said later on he moved to Stockton and became a very prominent uh, dry goods owner, he accumulated enough wealth to buy a lot of land. He had an orchard and from which he would sell fruits. I mean, he, he, he uh, apparently tired of living in a small community, so he moved back to San Francisco for a while set up his practice again. And um, <laughs> one of the things that happened to him, uh, he was robbed while he was in San Francisco. Somebody stole all his clothes and he had no clothes whatsoever except uh, his wife's garments. So he had to put them on and he went shopping for uh, men's clothes while he was wearing his wife's um, dress. 
and uh, it was very, very embarrassing to him. It was written up in the newspapers, and uh, he left kind of in, in that uh, embarrassment back to New York, where he set up his podiatry practice again. But I thought that was kind of an interesting anecdote about him being robbed. Uh, so he and, was really he was a, he was an entrepreneur in addition to being a doctor. I mean, he did other he did other things. Oh, much so. Yeah, as I said, when he first started out, he not only cut nails cut the toenails, he sold patent medicines. So you also write that uh, this was a fellow who um, was kind of a self-promoter. I mean, was such a, a puffery common to many whose work involved healing and surgery um, in an era before the AMA watched out for such marketing techniques? I mean, was, was that, was that uh, common for folks like this who uh, began to get a reputation for performing these procedures and healing people? Oh, very much so. There was a lot of puffery going on in those days. They would call themselves, there wasn't any licensing requirements to be called a doctor in those days. So anybody could be called uh, a doctor. And many people did. Um, patent medicines would always, you know, shouldn't say always, but many times would uh, list the doctors, so-and-so's medicine or, or whatever. Interesting thing about uh, Issachar's uh, supposed medical background. He claimed he had a um, medical degree from uh, a college in Cuba. And the interesting thing is he didn't speak Spanish. So how he got that degree, nobody really questioned him on, on that. Uh, but he kept, you know, this was some, you know, thing that he, he would let people know. This is where he got his degree from. Uh, and in fact, even the, there was a college in Cuba, but it didn't come into existence until long after uh, he decided he he called himself a doctor and said he graduated from there. But yeah, that was very common, and you know it, it's still common today. A lot of people lie about their resumes. You see that in the news all the time. Very prominent politicians, uh, you know, get caught out saying they did something, they served in the war or whatever. And uh, this is you know something that's been going on for a long time. So we're talking about uh, close to the, the middle of the 19th century. The Jewish population in this country was still relatively small. Um, and there was clearly a lot of anti-Semitism out there. Uh, but one thing seems to be clear from what you write is that Zachary kind of made his way to the top and developed personal relationships with people of all faiths. Um, how usual or unusual was was that was that kind of camaraderie and and being able to relate to people? That was very very unusual. There, as you said, there was a lot of anti-Semitism uh, in the United States at that time, and um, very often he would in news reports he would be re, you know referred to as Doctor Zachary the Jew. Uh, so um, there was that kind of background anti-Semitism that he had to deal with, but uh, somehow he surmounted it and um, he allied himself with, uh, with Lincoln, who was a very, um, if you want to call it a philo uh, a Jewish person. Um, he, he was very remarkable, very remarkable in that he didn't have these kind of prejudices that uh, other people uh, in the administration did. Um, some of his advisors or some of the people in Congress were very, very anti-Semitic. Um, they would, you know, Judah Benjamin was the other prominent Jew in the United States at that time. He was the um, Confederate Secretary uh, of State. And uh, when 
northern politicians would refer to him, they would also always uh, sort of have an uh, anti-Semitic remark attached to his name. So yeah, there was a lot of anti-Semitism, but Zachary, uh, he, he sort of, he, he dealt with it as best he could. Well, let's talk about uh, Lincoln. And uh, we had talked just before we went on this program about uh, the historian Jonathan Sarna's book, Lincoln and the Jews. He also wrote a book about uh, General Grant and the Jews, Ulysses S. Grant, President Grant and the Jews. Um, there were uh, a number of Jews in, in uh, kind of concentric circles, if you will, uh, that Lincoln either came into contact with or, or knew. And as you quite rightly point out, uh, he was uh, clearly uh, philo-Semitic. Uh, his uh, rescission of General Grant's uh, order, uh, General Order Number 11, Tennessee Department banning Jews from the Tennessee Department during the war, in the Civil War, of course, was just a landmark um, act uh, by a, a president of the United States. Um, it's certain there must have been uh, some common ground here uh, between the two, between Lincoln and Zachary, despite the obvious outward difference between the, the flamboyant uh, Zachary uh, and the, uh, the humble uh, President Lincoln. Um, do you think that uh, the connection is there because they were both objects of scorn to some, or do you think it was just a, a, a chemistry issue? What was it uh, that uh, allowed this friendship to develop? I think it was more a chemistry issue. They both had a sense of humor. Lincoln loved to tell jokes, and so did uh, Zachary. And so they would you know, entertain one another. <laughs> and and uh, kind of a bonhomie developed between the, the two of them, uh, such that uh, he was making, Zachary's making these frequent visits to, uh, to the White House. And uh, one of the news reports said he's one of the most um, frequent or favorite visitors at the, uh, at the White House. Uh, for some reason, uh, and, and people would scratch their head about this, he also got along with Mary, uh, with whom very few people really related. So he had that going for him. And uh, that must uh, at least uh, have allowed him to get into the White House to see Lincoln a lot more than uh, other people would. Uh, an interesting anecdote later on, after long after Zachary's past, uh, a lot of writers, uh, especially from the Wisconsin Jewish Journal, would write about um, Lincoln and, and, uh, and Zachary. And one of them said that uh, they used to enjoy a, a game of pinochle together. Well, well, did he also treat uh, Mary or this was just simply a friendship? Because no, he, no, he didn't treat, not known, it's not known to have treated Mary. Uh, at all, uh, although he had when the he had a few letters that he wrote to um, to Lincoln, in which he uh, said, you know, say hi to Mary, kind of thing. And uh, did I mentioned uh, Grant's uh, General Order Number Eleven? Uh, did that come up in any of of your research in terms? Of oh Zachary? yeah, a absolutely. Um, as I mentioned, Zachary was supposed to go down to see uh, General Banks to to be with him. Uh, in New Orleans, and just about as he was uh, about to, to leave, um, Grant issues this order saying that uh, no Jews are going to be allowed into that territory. And despite uh, what, what uh, many, many think, Lincoln knew about this. And uh, yet at that time, he didn't do anything. He just uh, said, well, let's just wait. And then when things um, got you know, out of hand, uh, he... Um, eventually rescinded the, the order for, for uh, 
uh, prohibiting Jews to, to go into the territory. But um, Zachary didn't have anything to do with uh, Lincoln rescinding that particular order. Although, uh, as I said, Lincoln, Lincoln knew about it at the time and didn't do anything at, about it at the time it was issued. It was just a little bit later that he did so. Yeah, there were actually um, a number of, of folks who um, uh, entered into the picture protesting the order. And uh, amongst them, uh, we have, there is a letter uh, in uh, uh, the National Archives, the Library of Congress, uh, from the Missouri Lodge of B'nai B'rith uh, to President Lincoln um, protesting this order. And of course, um, at the, the end of the story is a very positive one because he did, he did rescind it. Um, later again, uh, conferring with Lincoln, uh, you write that Zachary traveled to Richmond uh, to pursue a plan that he believed would end the war. What was the plan and was it feasible as, as we look back in hindsight? It wasn't much different from a plan that uh, Lincoln originally proposed. He was going to compensate Southerners for uh, um, releasing uh, their, their slaves. He was going to pay them. Um, that was one of uh, Lincoln's uh, original uh, ideas. But uh, Zachary wanted to go a little bit further. He was going to uh, have uh, the federal government assume the Confederate debt. So that uh, they, you know, you know, they would get them out of uh, any kind of financial straits that they would have been after the war. So it was those two kinds of uh, of arrangements that he was going to try and and get the uh, Confederate uh, higher ups to uh, to agree to. And um, he actually met with uh, Judah Benjamin, and uh, they they talked, but nothing obviously came of it. You know, it's it seems to me that. Um, to have this kind of um, ability to go out uh, and to act in the president's name in a way, or maybe he felt that's, that's what he was doing, maybe he didn't get the actual green light to do so. Um, it, it, it begs the question, how often, going back to Lincoln, how often would Zachary meet with there's a, a, I, I have in the book a number of uh, occasions. I, I think we know about three or four actual ones where Lincoln actually mentions uh, Zachary's my uh, foot doctor and, and uh, um, so and so. Uh, but, you know, there wasn't anybody, uh, you know, transcribing. Uh, the visits. They didn't keep a logbook of who was in there, who who wasn't. Uh, you can imagine that um, from the, one of the news reports saying that he was the most favorite visitor at the White House. He was there quite often, but we don't know exactly how often. So, what happened to um, to Zachary after Lincoln's assassination in the post Civil War years? Where where did he live, um, and uh, what what did he? continue to do? What was his, uh, did he just continue his practice? Um, what, what happened to him after 1865? Well, he did continue to do his practice in, uh, in New York. He became very wealthy. He would be, um, he, he, he used to be uh, known as a, uh, a gourmet and a, um, uh, like an Elsa Lancaster uh, character. He would give large parties for well-to-do people in New York, a very, very prominent person. Uh, but in the 1870s, 1880s, um, uh, decided that uh, he'd rather be back in uh, England. His life, 
his wife uh, left before him and he moved back to London and he set up a prominent practice there. He, uh, he, 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 um, was, well, he was a Mason, so he had these activities there. And uh, he, lived in, uh, he lived in England for the rest of his life. He had several children, um, many of whom, and I shouldn't say many, all of whom sort of had their own personal problems and he had to deal with that. But um, yeah, after, after leaving um, the United States, uh, he spent most. He spent the rest of his life in in London in a well-to-do uh, community. Uh, he he apparently was a very wealthy man at that time, and uh, he he lived uh, out his life there. He's he and uh, he died in I think it was if I remember right, 1900, uh, and uh, his wife died shortly thereafter. Well, after his death, uh, what was his reputation in the, in the Jewish community, in the medical community? And, and what would you say were his most important contributions? <laughs> I, I think his most important contributions is, in hindsight, you know, in, in, in us looking back, is this was uh, uh, when he used to call uh, himself, he would call himself an Israelite. He wouldn't call himself a Jew. He called himself an Israelite. <laughs> Um, the idea that, uh, and he said that that an Israelite could arise to some of the most important um, unofficial positions, if not official positions, in the in the government, and he was sort of setting um, a precedent for other Jews to aspire to higher office, to higher uh, attainment that they otherwise um, wouldn't have dreamt of. He sort of pioneered in getting himself to the top. Getting himself to be able to um, interact with as you know as high an individual as the president of the United States, uh, and let me just go back for a second when you talk about Grant's order. Although Grant, you know, is known for as you know, as as an anti-Semitic because of that order, he tried to make amends in his in his presidency, and he tried to do as best he could to undo the kind of uh, bitterness that he left behind. And in fact, um, Zachary, uh, he was a patient of Zachary's, for, for instance. Zachary actually cut his nails. Well, I, well Jonathan Sarna, in his book uh, about uh, General Grant, um, speaks about that, how he did spend a good part of the rest of his life trying to make amends uh, for, for what he did. I And the connection of Zachary to Grant is interesting, too. But did... Did Zachary leave um, a, a memoir? Did he leave any any kind of um, uh, notes behind at all that uh, after 1865 that that spoke to uh, his not only his life afterwards in England but um, maybe reflecting on his years um, in the U.S. and being close to Lincoln and others other important people? No, he didn't. But he did leave behind. Um... He wrote, he wrote, he, I, I say write, he plagiarized several books, but that's not what we're talking about here. And he had this uh, book of um, uh, endorsements that he had from the various people that uh, he treated, but he didn't, he wasn't an introspective man in the sense that he left a diary or a journal or you know, anything indicating um, his, his, you know, his, his life. Um, or his background, or you know, what his uh, ideas were. So no, he didn't leave any memoirs. Well, you know, the interesting thing is that uh, about history is that 
no history can be completely told. There's always something new and uh, a new insight, a new angle, a new discovery. And, um, you know, you've done that here, uh, Ernest, with uh, highlighting the life of um, an individual from the Jewish community who um, was uh, clearly a confidant of, of our greatest president uh, and the life that he led. And so you've really opened uh, some new chapters uh, in mm -hmm. the Civil War history uh, that we hadn't known before. The book is Lincoln's Jewish Spy, The Life and Times of Issachar Zachary by Ernest Abel. It's available in store or online wherever you purchase books. Really, we, we appreciate uh, your being with us today. Thank you for speaking with us about your biography of Issachar Zachary, which undoubtedly adds a new dimension to the story of Jews and the Civil War. Your book makes a compelling read for Civil War buffs. We're eager to learn about the less well-known aspects of this history of the Civil War. And again, we're grateful that you could be here with us today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Well, if you're looking for more of our diverse content, visit our website, benebrith.org, to listen to all of our conversations, podcasts, and live interviews. Tremendous thanks today to author and Civil War historian Ernest Abel for joining me, and thank you for listening in. If you like what you've heard, make sure you never miss an episode by tapping the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your host, Dan Mary Ashen. Talk to you again soon. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.